It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. Laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Forza Napoli Calcio podcast. This is a podcast all about Napoli, of course, but you don't have to be a Napoli fan to enjoy it. If you're a Serie A fan, if you're a football fan, looking for the inside scoop on all things Napoli, this is the place to be. I'm your host, Joe Fischetti. Thank you so, so much for listening. This is our Milan review episode, and I'm joined by a couple of guests to help me with this review, both of whom have been on the podcast before. I'll start with the admin of the Partenope Nation account on social media, Daniel Bowen. How are you? Hey, Joe. How are we doing, man? Glad to be on your show again. It's a pleasure to have you back on. Our second guest is a pundit and commentator for TV2 Sport in Denmark, Chris Sorensen. Welcome back. Thank you, Joe. Thanks for having me and happy belated birthday. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, it was. It ended up being a good one. It was everyone that's messaged me about it. I I told them, listen, it's great that we got that gift, uh, both in terms of the result and in terms of Davide Massa, which we'll talk about a little bit later. But at the same time, I never, ever want Napoli to play again on my birthday because it was just far too stressful. <laughs> but but otherwise, just have me on your part because, you know, every time I'm on, we're going to win 1-0. So we're on a streak here. Yeah, exactly. Twice is a coincidence still. So let's see the third time. If uh, if we win that one 1-0, then... I'm calling you more often, I'll tell you that much. <laughs> so let's talk about the match. Like you said, we won 1-0 on a goal by Ellie Felmas. Then we had a pretty intense 80 to 85 minutes of football before Milan thought they equalized through Francesi, uh, but that goal was ruled out by VAR. We're going to cover all of that, and we're going to talk about some individual performances. But first, I want to talk about the atmosphere at the mighty San Siro, because Dan, you were at the match, You've probably been to the San Siro before, but what was the atmosphere like for this one? Uh, it was it was just like it ever been at San Siro. San Siro is a crazy atmosphere for any game, but uh, <laughs> man, our fans nobody can compare to our fans with the noise, the chanting, the emotion. It's an amazing feeling to be in the middle of. Napoli fans, especially now that the ultras are back, man. It, I mean, you know, there's some things that are said that are like, well, maybe I don't want my kid to be here, but that's okay because it's just the emotion behind it. As we were walking up the uh, whatever the thing is called where it goes 
It goes around like this all the way up to the top. That takes like three days. Um, <laughs> as we were walking up, a lot of the Milan fans were shouting at us, and we were shouting back at them. And uh, you know, mothers and sisters were involved in those comments. So, <laughs> yeah. I honestly didn't expect the rivalry to be like that because I've been to games before there a few years back and it wasn't like that at all. So I was surprised and uh, very satisfied that when we left, we got to do the same thing going down with the victory and um, walking down. There was singing going on and some of the Milan fans were waiting for us at the bottom. And there's like 50 cops that were keeping them from actually getting to us. So it was a little intense, man. A little intense. So last time we had you on, I believe, was after the Fiorentina match, which you went to as well. And you were pretty worried being a visiting fan at that one. Was it the same situation here or was this one a little bit, uh, did it feel a bit safer? So the only reason it felt safer is because I actually sat with the away section. When I went to the game in Florence, I sat with those fans so yeah i felt a whole lot safer at this game and at that Fiorentina match i left early if i didn't leave early i was probably gonna have to um to do something i was gonna have to run or something because you know we won one zero and um man i was the only guy that was wearing indianopoly gear in the middle of all them so i learned my lesson i'm only gonna go to the away section from now on yeah, that's probably a wise decision. Chris, You last time we had you on, I think, was after the Salernitana match, if I'm not mistaken. And you were smart enough, I think, to not show any. You didn't even wear your Napoli necklace. Have you had the, the opportunity to visit the San Siro? Well, first of all, I want to say that I actually always wear my necklace. Uh, it's, it's there in, always and everything and every, any, in any time. But uh, yeah, I um, I would say that as a fan, you would, you would normally you know, try and act neutral and trying to dress neutral whenever you are going to these away games. I do it in respect of the home team, but um, I understand Dan that he obviously wants to wear the colors. I mean, I would prefer to do that too, but I'm not a big guy like Dan. I can't, I mean, I, I can hit a fist, but uh, I, I, I probably I probably can't do as much as Dan. So it's probably wise of me just to keep calm. So, uh, but yeah, I've been to uh, San Siro, like I think 16 times, if I'm not wrong. But just to watch Napoli, I think two or three times. And I've always been fairly safe, I would say. And I actually feel that over the years, it's been quite easy to even you know, actually see Napoli fans in the stand whenever you're watching the game. So it's one of the more safer places to go. And I would say if you're sitting out there and listening to this and never been to the San Siro, I have to say that you must go before the 2027 because they're going to tear it down and demolish the entire stadium. I mean, at least build a new stadium. I mean, I'm not sure yet whether they're going to demolish this or what they're going to do. But this is just a historical stadium where Maradona obviously played the opening match in 1990 as well. So, I mean, it, it's a place that you must try and see in, once in a lifetime at least. So, so go there and I would say that overall you will feel very safe, especially if you are wearing neutral colors. Yeah, I had a feeling that playing against such a big club, whether it's, I mean... I don't know about Juventus and Inter, but I feel like it's it's really the smaller, maybe local the derbies that are probably the more the more dangerous places to be a visiting fan. Then, yeah, I think you're probably right because I think that um, sometimes with the bigger clubs, you just have a little bit more maturity with the people there. Um, and I can tell you, when I got on the metro to go back to the hotel, 
there was Milan and Napoli fans on the Metro and nobody was doing anything. Nobody was bugging them or vice versa. So, but at the bottom of the stadium, like once you were exiting, if the polizia wasn't there, then something would have happened for sure. So I'll be honest with you. When I was getting to the Metro, I was like, Hmm, I don't see no more polizia. <laughs> but uh, it was good, man. The Metro was fine. It was shoulder to shoulder, but uh, there was several Milan fans mixed in with us and uh, nothing happened. So that was nice to see, to be honest. It would just add in also, Joe, that usually that, that derby against Inter and Milan is considered one of the most safer derbies, uh, I would say, in the entire world, because you most likely have a lot of fans actually mingling there. So it is considerably a, a very calm city to actually go and watch football. But obviously, you still have to use your brain and your good sense and then be careful, obviously. But overall, yeah, just uh, hit the road and go, just like Dan. Awesome. Okay, so let's talk about the match a little bit. And I want to begin with the starting lineups. Mario Rui and Lorenzo Insigne were not in the squad list that was released on Saturday. So we already knew that they wouldn't be playing on Sunday, Milan issued a press release indicating that Teo Hernandez would not be in the squad. He was dealing with a bit of a bug, and they were hoping he would improve overnight, but I think he got worse. His fever went up. What I think few people were expecting was for Andrea Petania to start over Dries Mertens. Chris, were you surprised by that decision? Yeah, at first I was, but I think obviously looking at how the game developed, even in the first half, you would see that there was numerous uh, reasons for it. I would say that some of it also go in line with, with starting with Lozano because Lozano uses his right foot, obviously, to create a scoring opportunity with his crosses from his right foot. And that's where you will have Patania to develop from it to actually have a greater chance to scoring a goal. We also actually saw a game where we were more in position than I anticipated. And I thought that if... Spalletti would have thought that, okay, the uh, possession would have been more like 65 in advantage of Milan. You would probably have seen um, Napoli playing with Mertens and then just gave the ball to Milan and then run some more counter-attacks with, obviously, Lozano up front as well uh, and Ilmas, obviously, on the left-hand side. But we ended up actually being more in bold possession and that turned out that maybe Patania could have been a, a very good solution. So, at first, I was surprised, but... Already after, I think, just 20 minutes, 15, 20 minutes, you could see there was a, a clear good reason to do it. And even after just four minutes, we all saw that the, the presence of Petania made the difference at the corner kick because uh, that was just brilliant stuff that completely took away all the focus from, from all other players and, and then Elmas could dig in. Yes, yeah, Spalletti's comments after the match suggested that he anticipated that Milan would press and he said... When the opponent presses, you need to play the ball to the attackers. In other words, you need to go long. And when you do that, you need someone with Patania's characteristics, which is, of course, his size and his strength. And we'll talk more about Patania later. But I think this was a great example of how Spalletti assesses and prepares for matches. This week, there was a chain going around where people would list their most overrated player, their most underrated, their best player, worst player. And a lot of people had Patania as their worst player now. These tweets are fun and all, but I tend to avoid them because I think it's they're a bit too general. They're, you know, a little bit too simplistic. I don't know how you can determine that. Yes, we all agree Koulibaly is one of our best players, but how do you compare Koulibaly as a defender, as a center back to like Osimhen as a striker, right? Like, I don't know how you compare that. Yeah, exactly. Like, you look back at uh, Rafa Benitez, who back in the days, he said he wanted uh, eight defenders, he wanted eight midfielders, and he wanted five attackers. 
And one of those five attackers was Peter Crouch, for instance, in Liverpool. And that's the kind of player that you can bring in in games that will create a different dimension to your team. And that's exactly what Pizzani can do. He, he creates something to the squad that, that no other players can do. And um, I think it's great that he's there and he's, his work rate is high and he's he's appreciated by his Balletti as well. So I think he absolutely deserves uh, himself in the squad. Whether he is the most important player, obviously not, but still he, he adds things to the entire squad and, and the season is long and you're going to see numerous scenarios throughout the season. And we saw also that against uh, Genoa early in the season. So we're going to see it again later on and we'll need him for sure. Yeah, and just to close the thought on that chain of tweets, I think a lot of people had Patania as their worst player. And I think for the manager, the job is to figure out who's best suited to play in each position for any given match. And that assessment has to take into consideration the opponent, the player's physical conditions, and so on. I also wonder if Spalletti looked at the matches against Sassuolo and Atalanta and said, okay, maybe I need to try something different. Because in those matches, Merton started, we started the matches really well, we went ahead, then we took him off and we conceded goals, we gave up those leads, and we didn't have someone... We didn't have Mertens himself on the pitch when we needed to score, whereas with this approach, whether Milan scored first or whether we scored first and then Milan fought back, we still had a fresh Mertens that was available to seek out a goal later in the match. The other decision that surprised me was the decision to start Piotr Zielinski because he left the Empoli match with what appeared to be breathing issues. It turned out to be a throat problem that was making it difficult for him to breathe, but then were you surprised to see Zielinski in the starting 11? Uh, no, to be honest, I wasn't. The couple things that I read, it didn't seem like what he was dealing with was too serious. He had been evaluated and everything, and he's been in such great form that we really needed somebody like him on the ball to uh, put pressure on the opposing team when we're you know, on the counter. And um, if I could just mention something about, uh, about your guys' analysis about Petania. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to disagree quite a little bit, okay? So Petania, he is big enough and strong enough to be able to hold the ball up and control it. But he rarely really does that. He loses the ball more often than not. He is a striker, which means that when he has an opportunity to score, he should be taking those shots. And there was one moment where he was on goal all by himself and he let the defender catch up to him. He had another opportunity to shoot, and he shot the ball over the uh, the goal. And I think that his work rate is something to be lauded, but unfortunately, that doesn't really do a whole lot most of the time because he just is not effective in what he does. I think his goal versus Genoa was important, but it was a little bit of a fluke because you don't put Patania in the game really imagining that you're going to get a goal from him. It's just not what we get from him. But I do think that the idea of having Patania in there in a match like this and having Mertens to come on at the end with that burst of energy, I do think that that was a good move. I just, Patania frustrates me, man. You know, I like him. I don't hate the guy. You just think that you should be able to get more from him. He doesn't play that often, so... His legs should be a little bit more stronger. He should have a little bit more umph. And, I mean, we played a long ball to him a couple of times, and I was like, why did we just do that? Because <laughs> he's not going to catch up to that ball, you know what I mean? 
So, yeah, I, I disagree a little bit with just uh, Patanya's impact for our team in general. And uh, I'm hoping that this isn't something that's going to be given an overreaction to his effectiveness in the game because he was he was as effective as he's ever been. But we need goal scoring, man. I mean, we scored in the first five minutes and won the game 1-0. That's not going to happen more than maybe once or twice in the entire season. So I'm hoping that that's not something that's going to be repeated where we start looking at thinking we can start Batania often because I just don't think it's going to help us get the three points every time that we should be getting the three points. No, and I think what I was suggesting is that Spalletti has to kind of pick and choose his moments. I agree. Patania hasn't scored as much as we would like for him to score or, or need him to score. I do disagree in terms of him holding up the ball because I thought he did that fairly well, particularly in the first half. He was dropping pretty deep and controlling the ball in his chest and laying it off to teammates for the long balls that were played over his head. I don't even blame him for that. I mean, even on the, the commentary on the zone, they kind of joked that they forgot that it wasn't Osimhen up there when they played those balls over Patania's heads, right? So, I mean, I'm not saying that Patania is a world beater or world-class player or anything like that. I agree he needs to score more, but I think he maybe gets a bit of a, a harsher criticism than he might deserve. Just to add to it, I, I just want to say that Patania maybe is more of, a, of the character of the player that I'm seeking in a team out of my five strikers, that you have a character like him that can be like this bulldozer that you can bring on in those moments where, where you can create something extraordinary. You can create something different, something surprising, which was also what Joe was mentioning in his question, that he wanted to bring something, Spalletti, that was unusual from the other match. I agree that he hasn't scored as many goals as I was hoping or created for. Those, or even created those moments where he did something that made a difference in an attacking play where it resulted in a goal. He, he just doesn't do that. And I know Joe said that you noticed he held the ball up and he, he would chest it and, you know, he would get it to his other players. But I think if you relook at the match, there's, there's too many moments where he should have done that and he lost the ball. The dude is huge. You said he's a bulldozer. He needs to be more effective and be able to use his body better than he does. That's just how I see it, man. Fair enough. Allow me to just add to Selinski the part that uh, Joe was asking about too. Um, I agree with Dan that I was not surprised to see him in the squad. I also thought that in the event that uh, Spalletti decided to leave Mertens out in the starting lineup, he sort of needed a captain in the squad. And when you have already Koulibaly and, and Insigne and then Mertens out, then who are they going to put on? And I'm, I'm absolutely sure that the doctors and everyone else, the whole staff has simply just reviewed him and, and checked him inside out and make sure that he's fit for the game. And um, I think he did well under the circumstances. However, he probably not a man of a match, in my opinion, but he definitely did well overall. Yeah, I completely agree. I think there's no way they would have let him go out there unless they were completely satisfied with the test that they had run. And it really does seem like this is not you know, a heart or a lung issue. It really was a throat issue. Actually, in his post-match conference, he coughed a little bit. So he's still probably dealing with it. But um, yeah, there's no way they would have allowed him to play without being safe. So that will do for part one. In part two, we'll talk about the Elmas goal and we'll talk about the big controversy at the end of the match. Welcome to part two of the Forza Napoli podcast. So let's talk about the goals next. Eli Felmas opened the scoring only five minutes into the match. 
Chris, what did you make of that goal? Uh, the way I see it, it was that obviously uh, it looked a little bit like the goal that Perisic scored against us in Chanalulgo. He made the um, the cross from his corner to the first post. And then obviously it looked to me that the entire Milan defense was looking at Catania in this case and uh, had no focus on Elmas, who basically just sneaked in and were able to sort of tap it in with his head. Uh, massive surprise for me to get this lovely moment just after four or five minutes. So absolutely thrilled with the goal and great celebration overall. So a tactical, uh, great move. And I, I think it's probably been something that they've been working on on the training pitch, I assume. Yeah, I mean, the play was executed to perfection exactly where it needed to be at the near post. And I don't know if Patanya meant to jump two inches in the air to screen the other players. But, uh, yeah, anyway, Elmas, Elmas was able to get a really good amount of his head on it. And we'll just say that Patanya did that on purpose. But um, it was a goal right at the beginning of the game. And the feeling I had was, oh, boy, we might actually really blow these guys out. Because right after that, Napoli was all over them dudes. And I was like, they're going to blow these guys out. And then it just... For whatever reason, they had a couple moments where they couldn't execute in the final third, and I was like, okay, well, if they're not able to execute, I mean, Lozano had a couple opportunities where you felt like he was going to be able to get a shot on goal, and it didn't end up happening, and so it was rough the rest of the game, and uh, that goal was huge because if he didn't score that goal, I don't know if we would have even been able to get a draw from that game just because it was so early in the game. And and Milan was playing hard too, man. Milan played a good game. It wasn't like they didn't play good. They did. It's just that our back line was able to keep them at bay to where they couldn't get a really good shot on goal. You know what I mean? Yeah, let me just add in that I think the pace of the game in that first half, when you look at it again, the pace is like is almost going too fast that the two teams can't even keep up with the pace. It was crazy to see it. And I thought that in the first half, you really you really missed out on Fabian Ruiz to sort of, uh, you know, take the ball and keep the ball a little bit more and make sure that we could keep possession in that sense. I think Diego Demme was, was having a harder time to sort of uh, keep control of the game. And that sort of, with Milan being behind, that the tempo, the pace was just brought up in something that is, yeah, out of proportion, basically. But I thought... Like Dan was saying that, I thought we did well in what you as a manager would say in, in what you call the first phase, where actually Ospina is playing the ball out in the first phase. You know, Milan went high on the on the pressure, but we still managed to do pretty well to get rid of the ball and create some nice scoring opportunities out of, of the first pressure, which led up to um, Tolosano, for instance, who... who yeah, basically, with a little bit of a luck, could have, uh, yeah, could have scored another goal in, in first half. And um, I thought we were close to do it and did well in, in that first phase, but um, massive pace that was almost too fast for the two teams. Yeah, that was Elmes' sixth goal in all competitions this season. Four of them were in the Europa League, but that's because he's played more in the Europa League, at least up until this injury crisis. He hadn't scored in Serie A since the opening match of the season against Venezia, and I agree with you guys. I think this was a well-executed set piece. I think Milan were defending in a zone, and the best way to defeat that zone or to beat that zonal marking is to be in motion, right? And that'll confuse the defenders. They have to decide whether to follow the player or leave them to the, the next closest teammate. And I think you could see from just how active Elmas was at that near post that this was definitely a set piece. And then also when you look at how they celebrated the goal, like you mentioned, Chris, 
they were celebrating the fact that they executed something that they had worked on in training. So that was good to see. There was a little bit of controversy on this goal as well. Both Florenzi and Stefano Pioli said after the match that they thought the throw-in that was awarded to Napoli, which led to the corner kick that led to the goal, was actually should have been a Milan throw. I tried to find it on the broadcast, but we didn't get a replay of it, so it's really hard to tell. In real time, it's next to impossible to see who actually uh, touched the ball last. Speaking of controversy, let's move on to the big talking point in this match, which was the Francesi goal that was disallowed. Let me quickly recap the play, and then I'll get both of your thoughts on the decision. So the play started with Balotouré playing a ball into the area. Giroud wins the header over Juan Jesus, and then both players fall to the ground. Pierre Kalulu gets to the ball right before Lobotka does and touches it forward with his knee towards Jesus and Giroud, who are both still on the ground. Jesus attempts to clear the ball, but it falls to Castillejo. His shot is blocked by Gulam, and the ball kind of ricochets straight to Kessie, and then he puts it into the back of the goal. VAR intervened, and match official Davide Massa went to look at the monitor. It was a pretty quick review, actually, and then Massa called Giroud offside when Kalulu touched the ball forward, so the goal was disallowed. Chris, I'll come to you first. Do you think Massa made the right decision here? <laughs> Uh, to be honest, I actually think it's a very, very tough one because in the event that, you know, you're going to call an offside, it will be because Giro is interfering on the game. And um, I can't see that Giro is interfering that much. You can say in some ways he does. And maybe there is a little bit of tangle with his left foot or something like that, that as uh, for me, a little bit hard to see. And when it's a little bit hard for me to see, it has to be clear and obvious. But like you're saying, Joe, Massa is, is only using a little bit of time out there. So for him, it might be clear and obvious. I don't know whether he's seeing pictures that I don't see. But if it's clear and obvious to, enough for him, naturally, he's interfering in the game. And naturally, there will be an offside. And hence, it will be fair enough. But at a first sight, at a first glance, when I see it, I'm actually more surprised that it's is ruled our way as opposed to stand as a Milan goal. That's just my two cents. Okay, Dan, what do you think? Yeah, I think it was a very borderline call, but I do think that it was obvious that Giroud was interfering with Juan Jesus. Even not allowing Juan Jesus to get back up on his feet, would have Juan Jesus been able to actually get to Casey to block the shot? Maybe not because they were pretty far away from each other. I know that there's been some images out there about how Juan Jesus was being choked during the same play and like sort of tackled. Maybe the refs saw that part of the play too and just took that into account. I mean, I don't know. What do you think, Chris? Massa is calling it an offside, like Joe was saying. So it cannot be that foul that was made prior to the offside, even though you are absolutely right. It looks like Juan Jesus is, is going down and you could maybe argue that you will call it a foul as opposed to an offside. But the tangle around Juan Jesus' leg or anything, I, I can't really see much of it, but they must be able to see it. And, and obviously, he is in an offside position. And if he is uh, interfering with the game that way and not allowing Juan Jesus to actually get a, a chance to defend, obviously, it's an offside. And then it's clear. Then the other thing is, like, we should be extremely happy that that happened because I think that the consensus is that more often than not, we get the short end of the stick. And whether there's, you know, the conspiracy theories are accurate that, you know, the league never wants Napoli to win the Scudetto or not, who knows. But 
that could have been one of those borderline calls that we actually didn't get. And here we go, you know, the, the league's corrupt and they don't want Napoli to win it and everything. So I'm very happy that it was made. And Napoli deserved to win that game. So I don't feel bad about it at all, but I do understand how Milan fans would be upset about the call. I'm going to touch on an explanation I have for why we got that call. But first, let me explain the rule. And then I'll also give you an opinion I heard on another podcast, which I think is an interesting one. And Chris, this might be easy for you because you are an an official, licensed official. But what the rules of the game of football from the Italian Referees Association say that a player is in an offside position if when the ball is touched or passed, he's actively involved in the play. So this is the term that everyone's discussing, whether... Giroud was actively involved and you can be actively involved in the play in two ways either by touching the ball which we know was not the case here because Giroud did not touch the ball or by interfering with the opponent as Chris said which is what this debate is centered around now according to the rule you can interfere with an opponent in a few different ways first you can prevent him from being able to play the ball either by obstructing his vision or by contending for the ball so there may be something there in terms of contending for the ball second you can interfere by attempting to play the ball when that attempt impacts the opponent again, possibly something there. And the third is he can do something that affects the opponent's capacity to play the ball. So the debate really comes down to whether Giroud was interfering with Juan Jesus. Now, we're all Napoli fans, so naturally we're probably going to be biased in favor of an offside decision there. Just like I'm sure Milanisti are going to be biased for the opposite decision. I think Milanisti will argue, to Chris's point, that Giroud fell over and didn't attempt to play the ball. I'm going to defer to Connor Clancy's position. Connor's from the Forza Italian football podcast. And his take was that if Giroud was not there, then Juan Jesus might have just allowed that ball to roll to David Ospina and he would have collected it and there wouldn't have been anything. So just his presence forced Jesus to try to clear that ball out. And then, you know, the next sequence of events happens. You could also say that if he allowed the ball to roll through and Giroud was there, then he would have had a goal-scoring opportunity. So that's one take that you can look at that would suggest that he did interfere just by being there. I'm sure this is something that people are going to debate. I mean, I do take some comfort in knowing that the three hosts of that podcast, Ewan Burns, Kevin Prozelski, and Vito Doria, who's a Sampdoria fan, so he's pretty neutral. They all agreed with the decision. Nima Tavali-Ruzzi of the Italian Football Podcast agreed with the decision, and he's an Interista. So That's a small sample size, but it's fans of different clubs that are still sort of agreeing. There might be some some different biases. Connor's an Atalanta fan, so I don't know how Interisti and Atalantisti (laughs) feel about this. But, you know, at least it's not just Napoli fans who think the correct decision was made. I just want to add that we always have to remember also that referees, they do look at it completely different. Even VRR is never going to be perfect. We're not going to see a perfect world of football because referees and VIR assistants or whatever, we're all going to look at it differently. We should try and aim for a consistency in all this. And this is what we football fans would always look for. And we need to look at transparency, which is also my point that I've heard that apparently now they're going to be able to release all these communication things that are going on in the VRR room. So everyone will know what is going on and why they ended up with that decision and not the other decision. But we will see other incidents maybe already uh, this coming week with something similar where where you might see um, a player or two being, you know, interfering on, on the game. And we would ask ourselves, what else would the person have done? So so it's never going to be a perfect world, but uh, we're just happy that uh, it ended up with the lucky stick this time, thankfully. 
Hopefully that doesn't cause a controversial call down the road to go against Napoli. I know a lot of Napoli fans will start thinking about that. Oh, the next real close call, they're just not going to give to us because we got this one. And yeah, hopefully that doesn't happen. We maybe didn't even have to wait for the next round because the day before in the Atalanta match, there was another sort of controversial offside decision. I think this one, at least the correct procedure was followed because I think in the Atalanta case, they left it to the VAR to make the decision when it was a decision that should have been made by the official coming over and looking at the monitor. Then you've kind of alluded to Fiji Chi or whoever being sort of anti-Napoli winning a Scudetto. So let me give you my take on that because I think a lot of Napoli fans agree with you that we were all shocked because these decisions never seem to go our way. So here's the only logical explanation that I can come up with. And it's that San Gennaro's blood liquefied earlier this week. In fact, <laughs> it didn't liquefy at first. It was pretty late. So I think San Gennaro intervened late in this match. So grazie San Gennaro. So let's close part two with a quick discussion of the 85 minutes or so in between the two goals. We've kind of touched on it already, but a lot of people were describing this match as maybe a bit underwhelming, a bit uneventful. That wasn't necessarily a shock given the absent players, but I thought it was a bit more of a chess match. Chris, what were your thoughts on that part in between the two goals or the goal and the one that was disallowed? Well, I mean, uh, we touched base about the first half. I more want to talk about the second half where we're thinking about the the changes that uh, Spalletti is going to make. Being on, uh, Lobotka was phenomenal. I think he was fantastic on the ball. He actually used to play in the Danish league, by the way. He used to play for a Danish team. And um, I know that, you know, no one was able to take the ball away from him whenever he was playing here. Obviously, we are in a, on a lower quality, a lower league in comparison to Serie A. But I think he was phenomenal. I think it was a little bit strange for me in some ways to see him taking off Patania and not bringing on Gulam at that point because I would have already gone down to five men in, in the defensive lineup. So he was still keeping on uh, four at that moment. But then just like five minutes after, you immediately saw him changing that around, taking out Elmas and then bringing on Gulam to sort of strengthen the defense because you knew already when they had those two towers, even you can also in- include Tomori and you can include uh, Romagnoli, who you know they were going to bring up those balls and it's going to, be a massive problem for us but in between in the second half I think overall we did well naturally when you're looking at the stats they are very very close very very tight but like Dan was saying early on I think if we should have found a winner in that game I still think it would have been Napoli that would have made most sense to me but overall um, I think that we did well and I think Spalletti again got it right with the majority of his substitutions. So yeah, great performance guys and I know we're going to touch base on on some of the best performances later on. Yeah, Dan, anything you want to add watching this live? How did you feel about just the way the match played out between the goals? I think it was one of those matches where it was all about effort. It wasn't so much about trying to actually create a strategy to do something in attack to actually score. It was just more about, I mean, it seemed chaotic, to be honest. A lot of it seemed very, very chaotic. But as Chris mentioned, Lobotka, when he came on, he settled things down. And uh, I think that helped a lot to keep us from getting a little bit too rambunctious with the ball and losing possession of it. And it was nice to see Gulam get in there and get some minutes. That's going to be important that, if we can have him available to do that, even at the end of matches, whenever we need it. And I'll tell you what, in the stands, 
<laughs> there was a few dudes to my left. Oh, my God, they were so loud. We were all the way up at the top, and those dudes were yelling down to get Onus in the game. And I think Spalletti heard them guys, man. They were so loud. It was crazy. I couldn't believe how loud he was yelling. And everybody was looking at him like, I can't believe how loud he is. But I thought Owenus would get in there a little bit earlier. But I think Spalletti noticed what was going on with Lobodka. And he wanted the game just to be controlled. And he didn't want something to happen where there was a little bit, you know, there was moments where a mistake could be made. And, and Owenus, he's not coming in the game to control it. He's coming in the game to score. And he doesn't care. He doesn't care if it's going to be risky what he's doing with the ball. So I was a little bit worried when the subs weren't coming in a little bit earlier. But, man, Spalletti made the right decision, I think. You know, you're right. Unas might have exposed us as much as he brings you a potential goal scorer. But when you when you attack, you also expose yourself defensively. You open yourself up a little bit. And we know Spalletti likes to play compact. I thought it was still a very interesting match. It was certainly very intense. Milan definitely seemed like they wanted to keep the ball, even if that meant playing it back to the keeper. And Pioli said after the match that this was the first time all season that Napoli didn't have more possession than their opponent. So I guess he took some positive out of that. Now, we were quite content to allow Milan to pass the ball around at the back. Personally, I thought maybe we sat back a little bit too much, but given the injuries, given we were playing at the San Siro, given that we play again on Wednesday, I understand the approach and Pioli also said after the match that this was the first game all season that Milan haven't scored a goal. So, you know, what we did worked at the end of the day. It maybe wasn't the prettiest. It needed a VAR intervention at the end, but we got the result we needed. I think this is one of those matches that could have easily gone either way. There weren't many chances for either side, really, but, you know, Ibrahimovic had the header in the first half that didn't miss by much. And then Ospina made an amazing save on Ibrahimovic in the second half. There was a Florenzi volley in the first half that came close as well. Dan's favorite player, Andrea Petania, had a couple of chances that he alluded to that uh, that didn't hit the target or there was the one where he didn't even get the shot off. Thankfully, that goal was disallowed because if that goal did stand, we'd probably all be looking back at Petania and that missed chance. I think it was in the 77th minute thinking that he might have cost us some points. So that will do for part two. In part three, we'll talk about some individual performances. Welcome to part three of the Forza Napoli podcast. So let's talk about some standout players. For me, the players of the match were our two center backs. Chris, how happy were you with the performance of Amir Rachmani and Juan Jesus? Wow, Joe, it was phenomenal. You have to um, take everything into account, even that Manolas is leaving just this week, last week actually, and you know the leader Koulibaly being out and um, Juan Sechus not really playing much at a high level for years, and then all of a sudden he pulled up this performance, and you saw him also like with just a few minutes left, you know the way he was celebrating a defensive episode, you know where he was like taking the ball away from one of the Milan players. I think you know Rachmani. I saw some stats with him; they were like. Like, that's just phenomenal. I mean, it's a very, very high level. And I'm surprised that he has actually taken those steps in his development. Looking at his first year in, in Napoli, when I look back at that year, I think they two combined haven't played much together. And then they pulled up this performance at, at such a very, very difficult stage. It's outstanding. But I also do want to highlight, again, our um, Mr. Reliable Giovanni Di Lorenzo. 
I mean, playing out of position once again, which you've done before, and then being in this squad. I mean, he's played all the minutes of the season in Serie A so far, and there's no other player apart from goalkeepers who played all the minutes. He's done phenomenal, you know, outstanding in all aspects and tactical, probably a very, very smart decision to put him over there instead of Gulam and then taking out Messias of, of the game, who literally had no chances whatsoever. Malquit, who also um, contributed, I think, with a lot of offensive opportunities and created some fairly chances out of that. I think Lobotka was great coming on, like I mentioned early on, but the two defenders were, for me, absolutely the man of the match. I can't pick one of them from the other, I would say, but together they were just outstanding. Di Lorenzo has definitely been our Ironman, but you... You kind of touched on Malqui. I don't think we can afford to put Di Lorenzo on the left if Spalletti hadn't seen at least enough from Malqui to have the confidence to start him on the right. Dan, how did you feel about our center backs or even about our, our entire back line, how they played in this match? Oh, man. So as a unit, without Koulibaly, I'm trying to remember another time where they looked that good whenever Koulibaly wasn't in there. <laughs> man, Spalletti is looking a little bit like a genius with Juan Jesus, didn't he? I mean, nobody expected that Juan Jesus would be able to do anything except maybe be a guy that can stub when needed or play some meaningless game and not screw it all up. So I would like to give the man of the match to Juan Jesus only because he exceeded any expectation that anybody could have ever imagined for this match. Romani has been playing well for quite a long time, and I am so proud of Juan Jesus. And I'm hoping that that just boosts his confidence even more because, you know, we may need him eventually the rest of the season if once Koulibaly comes back and we're at the end of the season and if one of them has a knock or whatever, I feel like he's going to be ready now. I'm confident in that guy. And he can play... In Mario Rui's spot, if need be, too. So, man, Spalletti looking like a genius with signing that guy, for real. Yeah, I think we need to start putting some respect on Juan Jesus's name, and that includes myself. I don't think, as you said, Dan, I don't think anyone expected him to contribute like he has when we signed him in the summer. And we talk about how great of a signing Angisa was. This Juan Jesus signing is slowly becoming another really impressive play by the club. And I've been a big defender of Cristiano Juntoli for a long time and you know a lot of people have attacked him you know we've talked about Laboca as well who is a player that everyone jumped on Juntoli saying you know who is this guy what are we doing and now he's really uh, contributing positively to this club what impressed me the most about Jesus's playing this match was just the clean tackles that he made to break up Milan's attack there were I think four of them. There was one on Brahim Diaz in the 14th minute. He had a couple of tackles on Junior Macias. As you guys said, we took Macias out of the game, both Di Lorenzo and Jesus when he needed to step up. There was another one in the 74th minute where Jesus bailed out Angisa and Deme, who both got caught defending the same player and Salamakers broke on the counter and he stepped up and won the ball in the open field. I thought both... Jesus and Rachmani were really, really good in the air, especially Amir Rachmani. Like every ball that came his way, he was getting there first. And then that slide tackle that he made on Ibrahimovic in the second half potentially saved us some points. Let me just add in about this Juan Jesus. It's a perfect example of how brilliant Spalletti is in terms of leadership and in terms of bringing the best out of the player. I think he knows exactly which button to press in terms of getting the best out of him. 
And I have so much confidence in having Spalletti as our coach, really, because, you know, you just see a performance like him, you know, you would never have seen anything with this with uh, Maximovic in, in the past. So it's outstanding. I agree with, with Dan that if we have to take out one of the two, I would say also Juan Sessus as man of the match because we really didn't expect this to happen. So, yeah, I will agree with you on that. Yeah, so... I was going to talk about a few other players, but we're almost out of time. So I'm going to skip ahead. I think we all recognize that Lobotka had a fantastic match off the bench. We've kind of touched on Zielinski, on Kevin Malqui, on Di Lorenzo. I think we have to give a shout out to Almas as well. We touched on him as well. But I want to close with our Scudetto hopes because I think this is probably going to be a running topic or theme for this podcast as the season progresses. As long as we have this tight battle at the top. Then you reached out to me earlier in the week. I think you probably felt that Vincenzo and I on the Empoli review were maybe a little bit too uh, down on, on our hopes for where we were thinking Napoli would end up after that match. Maybe we were a little bit too reactionary. I think this result kind of offsets the Empoli loss because it, you know most people would have looked at those two matches and said, we're probably going to get three or four points combined if you would think, okay, beat Empoli and tie Milan. Obviously, you know, at the San Siro, right? So the more hopeful fans like Dan would be expecting six points out of those two matches. But I want to talk about what this means for our Scudetto hopes. Dan, I'll go to you first on this one. I'll be honest, like looking at the next several games up until we end up playing Inter at home and just looking at Inter's calendar and Napoli's calendar and deciding for myself what points I think each team should get from this, from each of those games. This game, I didn't know what was going to happen. I wasn't able to tell myself who was going to get the three points or if it was going to be a draw. So for me personally, after analyzing all the matches up until we play Inter at the Maradona, this three points was huge. Like we may look back on this game at the end of the season like the match that propels Napoli right back into the Scudetto race. And then once we get Inter at home, if we win the games we're supposed to win and Inter loses a point here or there, we easily could beat Inter to take over first place in that game. Yeah, and if we didn't win this match, if we tied, if we lost, we'd be six or seven points behind Inter. So in that sense, winning this match very much kept us alive in the Scudetto race. Chris, what are your thoughts on this? I'm going to keep the positive glasses on, just like Dan. I love his uh, <laughs> his energy on these things, and I, I agree with him, absolutely. I mean, we're definitely in it. I mean, last year at this time, I actually already called in the championship to uh, to Inter because they were knocked out on the Champions League last year, if we remember. But this year, they're still in it. They have a harder opponent in that second draw <laughs> against Liverpool, so um, they have a very hard draw, but they will have a, a very, very massive January and February for their perspective. We also have our games coming up. Naturally, they are a better side when you look at the squad and the depth of the squad, especially. But I can't see why we uh, we shouldn't be in it as long as we win our own game. And I think this game that we just saw against Milan could be a very decisive game, just like Dan is saying, that at, at the very end, we could be looking back and thinking that, 
wow, do you remember that day when we met in Milan and we beat them 1-0 and we kept that VAR goal away from us? So it could be one of those games that really turn it around. So I'm, I'm still up there with high hopes. I'm not going to call anything. It's way too early in, in all experts. Um, we need some players to come back, but this is a massive boost in terms of confidence. And you could also see the reaction after the, the final whistle that you could see how the players were surrounding each other on the pitch. And they knew that they had pulled off very important three points. So next match, it's another goal and we can finish up this 2021 in a very, very positive way and enjoy um, Christmas and New Year. And, you know, I'll tell you what, that match against Spezia on Wednesday, I think it's important that Napoli dominates that match. I think that they need that, that last like boost of confidence going into the break. They need to dominate. Of course, they need to win. But they also need to dominate the match. They need to instill their will on the pitch so that everybody can be like, okay, that Milan match wasn't a fluke. It wasn't because of VAR. It was because we are still a Scudetto contender. They're going to go out there and lay everything on the ground and completely empty batteries whenever they're going on holiday, wherever they're going. I think anyone who's listened to the podcast would know that I've been pretty reluctant to call us a favorite to win the Scudetto or maybe a contender but that was because I was looking at the schedule that was coming and this was the sort of final match of a very very difficult stretch in the season and even though heading into this match we only had one win in our previous six so this is now two wins in seven what I've seen from our reserve team does give me the confidence now to say that I think this is a contender for the Scudetto I still won't say we're the favorite because it's just so tight but the way that Spalletti has these guys playing, to play without five or six starting players, I think, you know, you can only expect this team to get better as some of these players come back. Hopefully, you know, knock on wood, we don't sustain any more injuries. And then we're just going to sign Brema from Torino in the January window. And then we have another solid backup or whatever you want to call him. I don't know, even know if uh, where he could actually fit into the starting 11. But at least we just need to boost the squad a little bit more after seeing Manolas leaving. So Brema is just so high up on all the stats and everything. He's winning all the area duels and tackles, interceptions, etc. He's just all there up in the high end. He's a leader as well. He's fairly young. So uh, I'm going to go for him for sure. And it will be a typical Napoli signing, you will say. All right. Well, that would be great. I mean, I think we definitely need to sign a center back because we're still going to likely lose Koulibaly for all of uh, January, right? And maybe a little bit of February. So hopefully we can get that one extra Christmas gift. Hopefully we can pick up those three points against Betsy and go into the break feeling pretty good about ourselves. That's all we have time for today, guys. But I want to thank both of our guests for joining me today. Dan, thanks so much. Uh, the pleasure's mine, Joe. Thank you so much for having me on your show again. Oh, it's it's my pleasure, actually. Chris, thank you. Thank you so much, Joe, and um, Merry Christmas and Happy New Year to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> you can find both of our guests on Twitter. Dan is at Azuro Bowen and Chris is at Chris Kaiser Dios. Of course, the Dios is spelled with a number 10. You can find me on Twitter at Joe underscore Fisgetti5. And you can find the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Forza Napoli Pod. Hopefully, I'll be back very soon to preview our final match of 2021, which is against Spezia. But until then, I'm Joe Fisgetti. Forza Napoli Sempre.
Social Podcast Network.